0: Good evening, it's a blessing to be here with you tonight, Um, I'm sorry that I missed you last week, I'm so thankful for Kevin uh, filling in for me, I was sick last week and I am better today, so thank you uh, and I'm glad to be here. Let's pray together before we, we turn to the Lord's word. Lord, as we come to your word tonight, we ask that you would grant to us open minds and hearts to hear from you. Grant to us attentiveness to your voice. Grant that we would not merely be hearers of your word, but doers of that to which you call us. It is in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. So as I have uh, dialogued with unbelievers over the years, uh, what I have found is that most objections to belief in God have the same underlying feature. I can think of one guy in particular, uh, sort of an intense heavy metal dude who was eagerly offering all sorts of standard objections. Uh, If God is so loving, why doesn't he write his name in the sky? Well, for, for one, because you would immediately come up with an alternate explanation for why his name is written in the sky, and two, because he sent his son to rise from the dead as an atonement for sins in time and space. Why can't you accept that as strong and sufficient testimony? Another uh, was, well, if he's really there, why have I never heard his voice? Well, because that's not how he chooses to communicate with humanity. He has spoken through uh, prophets and apostles and most of all his son. And this, all of this is written down for us in the word of God. So after a couple interchanges like this, kind of back and forth, uh, that he got real with me and said, um, said to me, I grew up going to a church and my father died when I was very young. Even though I prayed that he wouldn't, I was very thankful that he was honest with me. Um, as I've told you before, you've probably heard me say before, our apologetics, our evangelism, must be motivated by our compassion. I I told this young man that God, uh, that I didn't understand uh, why that had happened to him and that I was sorry that it happened to him. Um, And I have gone through hard things in my own life that God had allowed to happen to me. Um, And I didn't necessarily understand why they happened either, but what I had that he did not have was a trust in the person of God. I told him that God has shown me, as I have sought to follow him all these years through his word and through my life, that he was to be trusted. Often in conversations about suffering like this, I like to go to Uh, John 6, where after a particularly hard saying, many disciples leave Jesus, but the apostles say, where shall we go? You have the words of life. That is, the response of faith, the response of trust is, I may not understand why this is happening, but I trust you, God. I'll take the Difficult to understand, but true, with a sure hope over simple but uncertain, and without the power to save. As we share our faith, we should understand that most objections to belief are rooted in mistrust of God. They are relational problems more than they are intellectual problems. This is true today, and it's always been true. This is true with the, the problem, I can't believe in a God who allows cancer, and it's true in the problem, I can't believe in a God who forbids homosexual behavior. These two things are essentially the same statement. Plainly, the statement is, I don't like or trust this person you call God. So, how does that insight gain us anything? Well, might I suggest that the best way for us to address this strong mistrust is to open up the Bible together and read the accounts that we find of God in there. Might I suggest to you, believers in the room, that your own trust in God is contagious, and you need to get into the word with an unbeliever in order for it to catch. Might I suggest that the best possible answer to the problem, I don't know or trust this God, is to look at the word and ask the questions, who is he? What is he like? Why does he say the things he says? Why does he do the things he does? What do we know about him? What we know, those of us in the room, and what the apostles knew, is that our God is trustworthy in all things. You say, but his commands are very hard to keep. Trust him, he is good. You say, but my life feels out of control. Trust him, he is good. You say, but that road leads to suffering and scorn. Trust Him. He is good. Let me go one step further and say, if you are an unbeliever hearing this sermon for some reason, (laughs) you might say, I've read the Bible, and I've solved all that stuff in my mind. I've figured it all out, but in truth, you have not actually addressed the problem of God's, of the question of God's existence or God's goodness, if you have not sat down with an actual believer who trusts in Christ, in God, and tried to answer these questions. So, this is what I'd like us to do tonight, as we look in First Kings chapter twenty-one. I'd like us to read through the text and to see simply what it is we can learn about who God is through this passage. We're continuing our series on the life of Elijah, picking up in 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 17. King Ahab wanted a certain vineyard in order to have a nice garden right next to the royal palace. This was Pat's sermon from a couple weeks ago. Let me commend it to you. The owner of the vineyard refuses to sell it because God gave it to his ancestors as an inheritance. Ahab sulks, and his wife acts to fix the problem for him, as well as kind of to show him up as an ineffectual ruler. And she has a man killed by getting some people to lie about him, and thereby clears the way for Ahab to claim ownership of the vineyard. This takes us to uh, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who was in Samaria, Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And Jezebel, and of Jezebel, the Lord also has said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city The dogs shall eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Now, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you, have you seen how, I'm sorry, I missed a line here. Let me start over in verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is the word of the Lord. So, let's see what we can learn about the person of God through this story, through this narrative. I see three things. Actually, I see a lot of things, but three general headings that I want to lead us through tonight. It's a very simple outline. Our God is the one to whom an account is owed. Second... Our God is an avenger of evil. And third, our God is, above all things, merciful. First, our God is the one to whom an account is owed. After everything that Ahab has been through in his life, only in the latter part of this passage does he seem to get a glimpse of reality. God has been putting his sovereignty on display to Ahab and to Israel throughout the ministry of Elijah. First in the drought, then in the fire on Mount Carmel, and the death of the prophets of Baal, and so on. But Ahab has stubbornly resisted the Lord's message. There's willful ignorance in his words. In verse 20, have you found me again, O my enemy? In chapter 18, when Elijah shows up, Ahab greets him with, is it you, you troubler of Israel? To Ahab's mind, the problem is Elijah. The problem, uh, the person who's causing all of this ruckus is Elijah. Elijah's the one who keeps harassing him, causing all of this trouble. Who is Ahab's enemy? Is it Elijah? It is not Elijah. Ahab is fussing about Elijah while God is choosing which dogs are going to eat him. Ahab fell far short of what he was supposed to have been. The most important part of the life of God's people is their worship. As the king over the covenant people of God, Ahab's most important job is to ensure their worship. They exist, Israel exists, so that their worship might be a light to the nations, and as the holy family from which the Savior will come. If that is their purpose, then what's the purpose of the king? The purpose of the king is to make sure that they do that, that they they can do that. David establishes Jerusalem as the center of worship for God's people. Solomon had built the temple in Jerusalem to solidify that center. The few good kings that follow in the divided kingdom are the kings that fight against the idol worship and try to return God's people to the right worship of God. Ahab, like the other kings of Israel before him, had institutionalized the worship of Baal and Asherah among God's people. He married the daughter of a king of Tyre who this king, in his first career, had been a Canaanite f- fertility priest. When Jezebel comes, she does not only come as an ambitious princess, she brings an entire religious infrastructure along with her. Hundreds of prophets of the fertility god couple, Baal and Asherah. Marriage to Jezebel means a repudiation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Israel, at this time, the religion of the throne room is the official religion of the the nation. Thus, the judgment against Ahab is not merely that he worshipped falsely. He has led the people into false worship. God repeatedly says, that these apostate kings have caused my people to sin. That's the quote. Caused my people to sin. That is, God holds Ahab accountable for the false worship of the people. Ahab's false worship is not just a sin against God, but he's accountable for leading the people into sinning against God. I once heard a theologian talking about Parenting and talking about discipline uh, in, the, in the life of a child. And it was, so it's obvious, obviously a different context, but he said that God would judge the cruel father who claimed the name of Christ more harshly than he would judge the cruel father who did not claim to be a Christian. Why? Because in addition to the cruelty, This former one has falsely testified to his children about the authority of God. Abuse of authority that God has granted is grievous because it takes the name of the Lord our God in vain. Ahab's kingly authority comes from God, and what does he do with this authority? The excursus in verses 25 and 26 give a definitive and tragic analysis of King Ahab's life. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So Ahab owed God loyalty, he owed God allegiance, he owed God honor, because he was the king of God's covenant people. He also owed God these things because God is simply his creator. I'm reminded of Romans 1, which says, that humanity in its broken state that is all of us without the saving work of Christ knows God, sees him, knows that he is there and that he is acting and choose not to honor him as God or give thanks to him. This in turn leads to a futility of mind and darkness of heart. I wonder if you see that. Because humans deny God's rightful place on the throne, their minds become futile and their hearts become dark. Ahab denied the true God in his heart and it made him blind to the obvious signs that God was sending to him. And it made his heart darker and darker. This incident at the vineyard where he is responsible for the murder of Naboth is the fruit of of a heart that has refused to honor God, it's it's this, this refusal brought to full fruition. Right? His wickedness has gone all the way. Okay. Second, our God is an avenger of evil. This passage gets scary fast the Lord disapproves in the strongest terms of what the king and queen have done. God tells Elijah to tell the king that this injustice is going to be the end of him. It's interesting that this incident is the final straw. Uh, He could have sent this message to Ahab after one of his many other sins, but this one is the final straw. Why? Well, the life of a righteous man... To Ahab, it's not worth the loss loss of a garden. The reason that Naboth won't sell is because the Lord gave the vineyard to his ancestors. It's not, you aren't paying me enough, or even, I don't really like you as a king. Uh, He uses the personal name of God, Naboth, that is, here. Uh, in the passage just before what we've read today, and he says, it would be wrong for me to give the land that the Lord has given to my ancestors. Ahab and Jezebel could have taken this as a veiled criticism of their false worship. Whatever the case, the fact that Naboth appeals to the Lord here causes us again to see who ahab's enemy is ahab should have known better than this the god of the bible does not tolerate evil he will always repay it hell is real the wrath of god is real And it is coming upon those who do not place their hope in Jesus Christ. God is the ultimate in forgiveness and kindness. But if we ignore the complementary truth that he is the ultimate in justice and the repayment of evil, then we don't see his love and mercy with the depth and cost that it actually has. I think we can sometimes get used to thinking of God as the great no worries guy. If you, if you bump into someone accidentally walking down the hall, you say, I'm sorry. Or if you're from Michigan, you say, ope. And they say back to you, no worries, man. It didn't actually inconvenience me. It's not actually a big deal that you committed this perceived offense. Everyone makes mistakes. It's totally cool. This is how I I think some of us view our sins against God. We think of our sin as slight and not a big deal. And we think that God says, just don't worry about it, I got you. But that perspective on grace becomes ugly when actual offenses are committed. What if God were to view Ahab and Jezebel's sin in this way? It's all right. No big deal. Everyone makes mistakes. No, this was a heinous crime that these two committed. They showed contempt for Naboth's life and for the God who made him. See this, to to treat a human being made in the image of God as if their life is valueless is to disrespect that human's maker. It's an evil act against another human. It's also a high-handed act of disrespect to God. There's nothing good about true wickedness going unpunished. You know this. Justice is written on the human heart. One of my professors in college said that if you ever meet someone who claims to be a true moral relativist, you should slap him in the face and take his wallet. <laughs> He'll change his philosophy pretty quick. Because justice is written on the human heart. I, I, the reality is, the fact that humans are accountable to a just God who will repay evil is very, very good news. It's much easier to see this from the perspective of those who have been oppressed or violated. Victims of violent violent crime understand this truth better than others do. Naboth's wife understood how good it is that God is an avenger. The only reason that we are uncomfortable with the idea that God repays evil is because we realize that we could be the one paid for the evil. The no worries man view of grace actually carries no comfort. In this view, God merely overlooks our sin. He minimizes it and pretends that he doesn't see it. Contrast this with the biblical picture of grace that says each sin is actually an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. Far from overlooking that sin, what God has done in Jesus Christ is to atone for that sin. If you are in Christ, God will not change his mind about forgiving your sin. Do you know how I know? Because God the Son already died to pay for it. God has not merely informed us that he was going to buy. He has already put the money on the table. He has not merely committed to save us, nor merely promised to save us. He has accomplished our salvation on the cross. The wrath of God is real, and above all things to be feared. But the good news is that because of our union with Christ by faith, that wrath has already been poured out. This leads me to our final observation, and that is that our God is above all things merciful. The, the twist that happens at the end of this passage is astounding. First, that Ahab seems to actually express remorse for his crime. What? Who? Ahab? Uh, it reminds me of the Ninevites with Jonah, right? The wrath was to come on Ahab. He heard it, was terrified, and expressed his uh, grief, his fear. He wanted mercy from the Lord. We don't know what's really in his heart, but God relents from the punishment that he declared. This is the other astounding thing. Just like in Nineveh. God sees something in the response of Ahab that causes him to call off the punishment that he promised. Ahab will now not see the destruction of his house. He will not see the dogs. They're still coming. But Ahab is spared from being a part of that. I think we have to admit that this is hard to understand. This is not how this story is supposed to go. If you read or see enough stories, you start to uh, see the direction that stories are going to take. When you watch the original Star Wars trilogy, did anyone ever really think that Luke Skywalker was going to go to the dark side? we know how these stories go, right? Those of you who've read uh, "Anna Karenina, there's a, there's a point in that book when you realize she's not making out of this book, out of, making it out of this book sane or alive. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> Although most of the time uh, literature tries to obscure the fact, good literature is. Uh, about sovereign justice. The effectiveness of stories has a lot to do with justice being written on our hearts. The appreciation in us is innate. So what's shocking here, in this story, I think, is that Ahab should have gotten his punishment in the end. Ahab deserved it. Ahab's story of hubris and false worship making Israel to sin. I just spent the first part of the sermon telling you Ahab deserved it, right? Above all, he deserved it. He so clearly deserved God's wrath, and yet God relents. I confess I feel a little like Jonah. Jonah. I know that you know what he did, Lord. There are people who deserve mercy. Naboth. Naboth deserved mercy. Why would you show your mercy to Ahab of all people? What what did did it say? He was the worst of all kings that had come before. Now, we could stop and sort of parse and qualify and say, well, it does not mean this, and it doesn't mean this, and, and I, it, it's important to do, we'll do that, a little bit of that, but I don't want us to escape the tension here. Uh, Ahab is not totally spared, yes, his house is destroyed, in the time of his son Joram in 2 Kings 9 and 10, the dogs do get Jezebel. But I think we can be relatively certain that this repentance that Ahab has is not the same as the faith, say, of Abraham, Moses, or David. We're not saying Ahab, we're not saying Ahab is saved here. But what we are seeing is that our God is not bound by our expectations. Or even by this innate sense of justice that I was describing. Because although we get that from him, we are not him. Does that make sense? Made in his image, but not sovereign. This is the God who says, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. This is the God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There's mystery here, and I think the mystery is kind of the point. I think that the thing we learn about God here is that he is sovereign. He's free. The only thing that binds him is his character, and his word. His character is the definition of the word good. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly merciful. He is good. That's what his character looks like. We can emulate those things like kids play acting, going to work, and cleaning the house like mom and dad, but we will never express those things perfectly. So, there's some mystery here. Let's ask then, what do we know? God, in his mercy, looked on the grief that Ahab experienced because of his sins, and God showed mercy. Everyone in the country's eyes are on the king, and God would have wanted Israel to know that if they turned to him in humility, that he would forgive. And why did he do this? Because this is what he said he would do. His yes is yes, and his no is no. He is true to his word. This is what he promised to King Solomon recorded in 2 Chronicles 7. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. He spares Ahab because he said that he would. And God cannot break his word. Ahab deserved every bit of the judgment that was described, but our God always, always, always keeps his promises. Listen, it's not God keeps his promises if you deserve it. It's not God keeps his promises if. There is no if. God keeps his promises because he is good. That is who he is. That is his nature. He is a God who cannot break his word. So... This God that we meet in this book, in 1 Kings, in this story with Ahab and Elijah, is he trustworthy? Is he worth following and sticking with when things are hard, when things feel uncertain, when uh, things are scary? I compiled a list of uh, sort of the statements, the descriptive statements that, we, that I, we sort of talked through in the earlier parts of uh, this sermon, and, and I want to read them to you uh, as we close here. Here's a list of the things that we've learned about this God, um, and, and these are the things... That we're going to answer the question, is God trustworthy with these things? He's the one to whom an account is owed. He's owed loyalty, allegiance, and honor. He's sovereign. He's an avenger of evil. He does not tolerate evil. He's an enemy of evildoers. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly merciful. He is infinitely holy and pure. He is free. He is good. And he keeps his word. Uh, here are a couple promises that you and I, uh, here are a couple promises that God has made to you and I that we can take comfort in, uh, knowing that God does not break his word. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He said, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Think about that young man that I um, spoke with and I described at the beginning, um, and I think about the, the difference that we had, the difference between um, my faith and his faith. And I think of, again, John 6, where um, what, what happens is uh, Jesus proclaims to the crowd, um, I tell you the truth, um, uh, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, otherwise you have no part with me. Um, and the, the, the disciples, the crowd that are there, say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Not Notice, it's not who can understand it, it's you. Who can listen to that? That's terrible. right? They don't understand yet that it's referring to uh, the Lord's Supper referring to his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. And he turns to the disciples, the disciples say, um, he says to the disciples, are you too going to leave? Um, And what is it that they say to him? Where shall we go? Uh, You have the words of life. Notice they don't say, you know, like Peter, remember the other time when uh, God, Jesus says, uh, I tell you the truth, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. So Peter says, oh, wash my head. Hey, I'm, wash, wash all of me. Peter doesn't respond to Jesus in this odd and hard-to-understand moment with, hey, I'll, I'll eat your flesh. That's not the response. He doesn't understand what Jesus has said. He doesn't know the outcome yet, but he trusts in the one who has said this. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would grant to us that kind of faith, that kind of trust in your sovereign mercy to us. I pray that you would keep us, pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit. I pray that you would encourage us knowing that you keep your promises. You keep your word. You cannot break your word. You cannot lose those who are yours because you are faithful and you are uh, worthy of all of our praise because you are so good and kind to us. We pray and ask that you would come, encourage us as we uh, face this coming week with uh, unique struggles and situations and uncertainties. I ask that you would give us the, the faith of the apostles. That we would follow you, trusting uh, and knowing uh, that you are good and deserving of our trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.